Good evening, church family. What a great joy it is to be with you and end off the Lord's Day together. And what a great joy it is to sing praises to our living God this evening. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Uh, we're carrying on in our series. This evening we're looking at verse 31 to 9, chapter 9, verse 29. In our passage, we're going to start looking at the first of three passion predictions. That is to say, the three times that Jesus, in his journey towards Jerusalem, predicts his death and resurrection. You'll see those in, in verse 31 of Mark 8, uh, verse 32 to 30, 30 and 32 of chapter 9 and verse 32 to 34 of chapter 10. Uh, to make sense of these predictions, we need to remember where we are so far in the gospel. Just before this passage, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And, and as we've mentioned, this confession is really at the center of this gospel. And from this point onwards, Jesus is teaching on what it means for him to be the Messiah, and by implication, what it means for us to, to be disciples of the Messiah, to be Christians. In other words, if Jesus is the Christ, the question for us is, what kind of Christ is he? And by implication, what kind of Christianity does he call us to? I would argue that this these passion predictions are all about teaching us what it means to follow Christ as his disciples. So with that in mind, let's turn to our passage, uh, verse 31 to chapter 9, verse 29. This is God's word. Let's hear it together. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. 
and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them, charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone said, someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And, whatever, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He's dead. Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And so far in the reading of God's word, may he reform our lives to its truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, having read your word, we do echo a prayer that's been prayed many, many a year ago. We ask that you'd help us to see you more clearly, to love you more dearly, and to follow you more nearly based on this passage, based upon who we see in Christ and his call on our lives. We ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It was true of Moses... It was true of Abraham, it was true of David, it was true of Elijah, it was true of Peter, and it is true of every single one of God's people. 
Our victories are often followed by defeat. Our works of righteousness are often tainted with sin. Our joys are often punctuated with pain and suffering. Our faith is often marred by unbelief. The Christian life, as Warren Wiersbe once wrote, is a land of hills and valleys, ups and downs. Perhaps you know something of of this. Perhaps you know what I'm talking about. Perhaps you know something of this land with hills and valleys. Perhaps you were once baptized and your faith at that moment was strong. Your intimacy with God was, was intense. Yet a few weeks after, you realize you became spiritually dull and God who was once so close to you seems distant. Perhaps you finally overcame a sin. Perhaps you finally overcame a trying and great temptation and you overcame it with great joy, yet the following day you gave in to a lesser temptation. Perhaps in one area of, the, of your life you're a spiritual giant. Your theology is on point, but in other areas of your life you're walking oompa loompa in the faith. Perhaps you've been bold for the faith. Perhaps you've spoken to friends and family members, but because of your sin, your witness is ruined. And you stand out for your hypocrisy. Dear friends, let me tell you, I've experienced all of this and more, and if I'm honest with myself, and if you're honest with yourself, this is what the Christian life unfortunately entails. Uh, Alongside victory is defeat. Alongside godliness is worldliness. Alongside joy is suffering. Alongside faith that is often fervent is unbelief that robs you of joy. We see this in Peter in our passage, don't we? Peter has just sounded a beautiful confession about Jesus, yet now almost immediately he finds himself out of step with Jesus. He's just declared that Jesus is the Christ and then almost immediately rebukes the Christ. He has just affirmed his faith in Jesus and he's just affirmed faith in Jesus as the help by the help of God. Yet now he's against God by setting his mind on the things of man. What's happened? What's happened to this great rock, Peter? Well, Peter, like the Jews of his day, has fashioned a Messiah, a Christ, after his own image, his own wants, his own desires. Like the Jews of his day, he he longed for a political Messiah who would bring glory to the Jews. As Jesus points out, the Messiah will be rejected. He will suffer. He will be killed by the very Jews he came to save. See, Peter set his mind on the things of man and quite quickly found himself out of step with the things of God. Realize what is true of Peter is often true of us. We may in one moment be consumed with the things of God, be fervent and zealous for God, yet the very next moment find ourselves out of step with God. And have our minds and our hearts drawn away by the things of man. 
And so given this reality, given this reality that the Christian life does consist of hills and valleys, the question becomes, how do we stay the course in this land? How do we keep in step with God and not fall out of step with Him by following this world? I think the answer is this. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. Uh, David Livingstone, as many of you would know, was a pioneer missionary to Africa. And we surmise that he walked uh, about 46,000 kilometers for Christ to preach the gospel. And the same question must be asked of him. How did he stay the course? How did he persevere through the hills and the valleys, literally, of Africa? Well, I think one of his prayers in his journal answers that question. Listen to one of his prayers. He says this in his journal. Send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever me from any tie but the tie that binds me to your service and to your heart. May I suggest to you that Livingstone stayed the course because he stayed close to Christ. We must remember that without Christ, we can do nothing. And with Christ, all things are possible. We must remember that it's not we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And we live now by faith in him. And we must remember that all of this is what discipleship is about. Being with Christ, following Christ, for Christ. And this is what Jesus is calling us to in this section. Through Mark, Christ is calling us to discipleship. He's calling us to remember that as we walk through the valleys and the hills, we need to stay close to him. Three things this evening about the call to discipleship. Three things. Firstly, Christian discipleship calls for death to self. Death to self in Mark 8, 34, Jesus turns from Peter after he rebukes him and turns to the crowd and announces what a true disciple is. That is to say, what, what makes a Christian? What is it that defines someone who follows Christ? And he says three things. A disciple is someone who denies himself, who, who renounces and disregards all his own desires, his own wants, his own pleasures, his own purposes, and who secondly takes up his cross. No, not that cross around your neck, no, that instrument of death, that instrument of dying to self. Take up your cross and follow after Christ. Learning from him, living for him. Essentially, therefore, a disciple is one who willingly embraces death to self in order to live for Christ. And realize here are the options that, that Jesus puts before us on the table. This is the option he places before every single one of us. It's either self or Christ. Either you die to self for Christ or you deny Christ. For yourself. The call of Christian discipleship calls us to make a choice, dear friends. It's either self or Christ. You cannot cling to self. You cannot cling to your own ideas and yet claim Christ. 
It's one or the other. It's him or it's you. Now, to motivate this death to self, look at what Jesus says from verse 35 to 38. Jesus gives essentially two reasons for for why we must consider it a great joy to die to self. Firstly, if you die to self or Christ, then you gain life. You gain your soul. You gain eternal life. Look at verse 35 to 37. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? If you had to ask the question, why would anyone want to die to self for Christ? Jesus would answer, because in so doing, in dying to self, you gain something far more precious. You gain your soul. You gain true life. Something far greater than anything this world can offer. By dying to self, Jesus says, you gain your soul. Now, imagine with me your car was stolen and, and someone comes to you and says, well, don't worry, at least you still have your key. How, how would you respond? You won't say, that's no comfort. The, the, uh, who cares if you have the key? The car is far more valuable. Well, well, in a sense, if you refuse to die to self, because you want the world, it's like choosing a key over your car. There's no comparison. See, to motivate this dying to self, Jesus says, if you die to self, you gain something far more great, far more valuable. Your very soul, your life. As someone has said, if we do not die to ourselves, we cannot live to Christ. And he that does not live to Christ is dead. Dear friends, that's what the Bible teaches, right? If you're not in Christ, you are still dead in your sins. Without God and without hope. And so the motivation is die to self to gain true life. But not just that. If you die to self for Christ, then you gain glory. You gain the glory of the Son and the honor and favor of God. Look at verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and, and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with, the, with his holy angels. See, see, Jesus is saying, if you refuse to die to self for Christ, and therefore by implication deny Christ, you lose out on glory. The Son will come in glory and He will ultimately despise and disregard those who were ashamed of Him and who failed to deny self for Him. See, to die to self for Christ, Jesus says, is gain. It's to gain glory and honor and favor. You see, therefore, the, the stark contrast that Jesus puts before you. What options he lays on the table. Either you die to self for Christ or you deny Christ for self. It's either self or Christ. And those choices have infinite, eternal consequences. Jesus is saying to choose self is to lose Christ. And by losing Christ, you lose your soul, you, you, you lose glory. 
answer the question is, which will it be, self or Christ? Your own desires, your own wants, your own ideas, your own comforts, your own purposes. Will it be yourself? Will you live for self? Or will you die to self for Christ? Yes, there is a cost to being a disciple of Jesus, and the cost is death. Death to worldliness, death to our sin, death to our own wants. Death so that we can live in Christ and for Christ. And realize it's this cost that must be paid if we are to persevere in this Christian life. There must be a laying aside of every weight and sin, Hebrews says, in order to run the race with endurance that's before us. There must be a dying to self if we are to follow Christ through the hills and the valleys. There must be a dying to self if we're going to grow in Christ. See, at each stage of spiritual growth, there must be a self-denial, a self-dying to your own wants and desires. There must be a self-emptiness so that there would be a spiritual fullness, as Richard Sibbs would say. I think Spurgeon understood this. Spurgeon said this, I've now concentrated all my prayers into one. And that one prayer is this, that I may die to self and live wholly to him. Dear friends, is that where you're at this evening? Have you counted the cost to, to follow Christ? Have you been willing to, to die to self in order to gain Christ? This is discipleship 101. You cannot claim yourself and claim Christ. It's one or the other. See, Christian discipleship calls for dying to self. Secondly, I want you to see that Christian discipleship calls for devotion to Christ. It's implied in the first one, but it's amplified further on. It's, we see it's called, uh, the Christian discipleship is called to to devotion to Christ. You see that in Mark chapter 9, 2 to 13. After declaring the, the cost of discipleship, we see Jesus announces to the disciples that some of them will see his glory when his kingdom comes, and they'll see it before they die. And what he has in mind is first and foremost the resurrection, but also they see a glimpse of this in his transfiguration in verse 2 to 13. Uh, that word transfiguration just simply means to, to be changed in front of others. That's what the idea here is. Uh, notice what it says. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could, could bleach them. Uh, that's Old Testament language to describe Jesus' glory, to describe his otherness, his, his, his set-apartness that is not like anything in this world. See, just as Moses waited six days to see God's holy glory in Exodus 24, so too the disciples here wait six days to see the holy glory of the Son of God. In fact, Moses himself, along with Elijah, appear, and this emphasizes the uniqueness of Jesus' authority. 
Now, there's a few reasons why Moses and Elijah appear. There's at least three I can think of. Uh, Moses and Elijah, the typical argument is, represent the law and the prophets, right? Uh, the, The whole of Scripture point to Jesus. That's what we're meant to see. But there's a bit more to it than that. Secondly, Moses and Elijah fulfilled prophecy. Uh, There's core passages that relate Moses and Elijah to the coming Messiah. Deuteronomy 18, 15 says this, The Lord your God will rise up for you, a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Or Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. See, the significance behind Moses and Elijah is simply this. They pointed to another. They pointed to one to come, and that another is Christ. That long-awaited Messiah who the people must listen to, who brings the awesome day of God's glory, is Jesus. But but there's a third reason why Moses and Elijah appear, I think, and that's because they long to see God. As we saw a few weeks ago, both Moses and Elijah saw glimpses of God's glory as God passed by them. You see that in Exodus 33 and 1 Kings 19. And what is significant now is the fact that the greatest display of God's glory is now seen in Jesus. After all, he is the radiance of the glory of God. You see, the appearance of Moses and Elijah is meant to emphasize the authority of Jesus, the law, the prophets, all point to him. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one who, who brings God's glory. And notice Mark's purpose. He says, Moses and Elijah appeared to the disciples. And the disciples saw that these holy men turn to Jesus and, and speak to him. And the lesson for the disciples and the lesson for us is simply this. Jesus has priority. He is the preeminent one. He has the place of right. He's the one who you must listen to. When Peter says, let's make three tents, he he still doesn't quite get it. He still places Jesus alongside of these three men. He should have actually said, let's build one throne. That's the point. Jesus is the one with preeminent authority. Mark has made this point again and again and again. And if that isn't proof enough, look at what is said next. Next we see that a cloud overshadows these men. God's manifest glory envelops them. And the Father himself personally declares that this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. That's not just a rebuke to Peter. No, that's instruction for every would-be disciple. Jesus is the one to listen to. He is the one you must follow and obey. He is the one who deserves your devotion. See, the transfiguration is, is intended as a lesson for disciples. And the intended outcome of this lesson is seen in verse 8. Look at verse 8. And suddenly, looking all around, they they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. That's the point we're meant to see. 
Jesus is the one who must be preeminent in the eyes of all disciples. Not the ideas of men, not the, the desires of the flesh, not the will of the world. No, Jesus deserves our devotion. Even if he's a suffering Messiah. Even if he calls his disciples to suffer. Realize the Father's voice vindicates Jesus' teaching. When the Father says, listen to him, it's saying, listen to him when he says that he will suffer and die. Listen to him when he says that you will have to die to self. See, the transfiguration teaches us that Jesus is the glorious Messiah. Yes, but the path to his glory is first and foremost to the cross where he will suffer and die. And the path of glory for every would-be disciple is preceded by suffering, by a cross that they pick up. That's the point of verse 9 to 13. Like the prophets, like John the Baptist, Jesus will suffer and die. It praise be to God, he'll be raised on the third day. See, the point is this, the road to glory leads to the cross. Glory is preceded by suffering. And dear friends, there's a lesson we mustn't forget. As disciples of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are called to bear a cross. You are called to suffer for the sake of Christ. Yes, and that suffering is producing for you a weight of glory, Paul would say. And perhaps the question we need to ask this evening is, is how far does our devotion go? How far are you willing this evening to follow Christ? How willing are you to follow him even if it means suffering? Let's be honest, like Peter, like the Jews of his day, we've divorced suffering from our ideas of Christ. Now, for many, following Jesus and being Christian is all about comfort, all about prosperity, all about your best life now, a life devoid of pain and problems and persecution. I'd venture to say part of the reason people are losing their minds about Woolworths is because they expect Christianity to be unopposed and to be comfortable. No, no, Christendom, Christian nationalism isn't the norm. I'll, I'll tell you what the norm is. John 15 is the norm. John 15, verse 18 to 20, 20 is the expectation we should have. Jesus says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than its master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. And so the question for us is, how far will our devotion go? Will we embrace suffering for Christ? Will we accept being alienated for Christ? Will we stand for Christ when the world stands against Someone has put it this way, a wife who is devoted to her husband 85% of the time isn't really devoted. I wonder at what percentage is your devotion to Christ? Where will you go 
go with Christ, and where won't you? Limited devotion is no devotion of all at all because Christ calls for absolute surrender. He calls you to take up your cross, follow Him, to listen to Him and devote it to Him. And realize that the transfiguration is, is given and shared and recorded for our comfort, for our encouragement, even as we face persecution, even as we face affliction. Listen to J.C. Ryle on this. He said the transfiguration was meant to remind the disciples that though reviled and persecuted, because they belonged to Christ, they would one day be clothed with honor and be partakers of their master's glory. I know we can be so discouraged in this world. We can become so discouraged when we understand what the call of discipleship means. Yet take heart affliction and suffering and, and standing out for your faith as you declare your faith and receiving uh, uh, persecution for it, take heart because suffering precedes glory for the Christian. Uh, Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then also you will appear with him in glory. And so take heart, dear Christian. Yes, the call to discipleship requires suffering. But the promise laid before you in your race, the promise on the other side of the hills and the valleys is that celestial city of glory with Christ. So Christian discipleship calls for devotion to Christ. Thirdly, it calls for dependence on God. In chapter 9, verse 14 to 29, we find this last, last exorcism in John's gospel or, or Mark's gospel. And as Jesus comes down from the mountain, what surprises him isn't the fact that there's another exorcism. No, what surprises him and disheartens him, you could even say, is the faithlessness of his disciples. Uh, look at verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me, he says. Now, like many, I think he's speaking about his disciples here. Jesus has, has come down from the mountain just as Moses came down and found a faithless nation. So too he finds faithless disciples. And their faithlessness is, is seen in their impotence. They're meant to heal this, 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 ex, this boy. Mark 6, 7 says that he gave his disciples authority over the unclean spirits, yet their inability here speaks of their own unbelief. Now, what this incident is meant to teach us is that a disciple of Christ is only as effective as they are dependent upon Christ. They're only as effective as they are believing and trusting in Christ. To understand this, look at this interaction between the boy's father and Jesus. In verse 22, the father of the boy says to Jesus, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus gently rebukes in verse 23, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. In other words, all things are possible for the one who has faith, who trusts in God, whose confidence is in God's ability to do more than we can think or imagine. And realize Jesus longs to see faith. Why? So that in our weakness, his strength can be our sufficiency. 
And we know this man's famous response, verse 24, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, what an encouraging verse that is, an encouragement to know that even in our faith and our weakness, Jesus doesn't reject us. No, he comes and he helps. I would suggest Jesus isn't just teaching this man, but he's instructing his disciples that in light of our problems, in light of our, our unbelief and the weakness of our faith, we need to turn to him and depend upon him for help. That's what we saw last week. That's what faith is all about. It is yielding yourself in your weakness to God. D.L. Moody put this way, true faith is man's weakness leaning on God's strength. And this comes out even more so in verse 28 and 29. The disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't heal the boy, and he responds, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In other words, the, the disciples' effectiveness is only possible as they humbly depend upon God. That's what prayer is, right? Humble dependence on God. Believing God enough to do what He is able to do. In our small group this past week, we looked at, we started looking at Jesus' prayers, His theology of prayer, particularly His seven whatevers of prayer. And one of the first things we really saw is that prayer is faith that turns to God for help. Prayer is faith that turns to God for help. Both prayer and faith are acts of dependence. They're acts where we come in our emptiness and our weakness and we throw ourselves upon our God. And see, the call of discipleship is a call of dependence. A dependence on Christ in faith and prayer, in light of our weaknesses, in light of our unbelief, in light of the, fi the fact that we find ourselves out of step with God, it yields itself again in the strong arms of Christ. I mean, think about it. How else will a disciple continually die to self and follow Christ? How else can you survive and persevere through your suffering? How else can we walk through the Christian land of hills and valleys? Only as we depend upon God. What Paul says of ministers in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 4 to 5 is, is true of every disciple. He says there, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. A dear friend, how thankful we should be in the Christian life. We do not go it alone on our own strength. No, underneath are the everlasting arms, whose arms are the arms of the everlasting God who does not faint or who does not grow weary. The God who keeps his people. And it's this God in Christ that we yield ourselves to, that we depend upon. So to, to return to our question earlier, how do we stay the course among the hills and the valleys? How do we keep in step with Christ and, and out of step in this world? By remembering Jesus' call to discipleship. We stay the course 
through the hills and the valleys by dying to self, by, by self that often leads us astray, by the flesh that hinders us. We, we die to self, putting it to death. And we stay the course by being devoted to Him, listening to Him, learning from Him, following Him. And we stay the course by depending on our God for strength. His power at work in us, Him being our sufficiency. But, but realize there's a greater motive to do all of this. Not only do we do all of these things, dying to self, being devoted to Christ and depending on Him, we don't just do that to stay the course. No, we do all of those things because of what Christ has done. In fact, may I argue, may I suggest to you that death to self, devotion to Christ, dependence upon Christ are all acts that flow out of the delight in Christ. These are all acts of delight when we see what Christ has suffered and died for. Notice verse 31 of Mark 8. Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. In fact, that comes up quite clearly in the Greek. He must be rejected. He must suffer. He must be killed. He must be raised. Remember, he, he wasn't rejected and, and he didn't suffer. He wasn't killed because he was the wrong guy at the wrong place at the wrong time. No, he was rejected. He, was, he suffered. He was killed according to God's divine plan to save sinners like you and me. He was rejected as, as our substitute so that we would be reconciled to God and made acceptable. He, was, he suffered for our sins so that we would be cleansed of our sin and sanctified and be made whole. He was killed as the punishment for our sin, our transgressions, so that we would live eternally with our God. And he was raised so that we would be justified before our God and enjoy our God. See, when we see what Christ has done, then why wouldn't we want to follow Him? When we see all that He has given for us, why wouldn't we want to give ourselves? Why wouldn't we want to, to heal ourselves to this call? Why wouldn't you want to die to self, devote yourself to Him, and, and depend on Him every single moment of your life? the one who has given you his very life. As I close, my conscience cannot allow me to not quote Frances Havergal on this. Uh, she's got this excellent hymn, Thy life was given for me. Listen to what she says, and I trust this will echo with our own hearts as we think through Jesus' call to us. She says this, Thy life was given for me. Thy blood, O Lord, was shed that I might, be, be, might ransom be and quicken from the dead. Thy life was given for me, for me. What have I given thee? Long years were spent for me in weariness and woe, that through eternity thy glory I might know. Long years were spent for me, for me. What have I spent for thee? Thy father's home of light, thy rainbow-circled throne, were left for earthly night, for wandering sad and lone. Yea, all was left for me, for me, what have I left for thee? 
thou, Lord, hast borne for me more than my tongue can tell of, of bitterness, agony, to rescue me from hell. Thou sufferest all for me, for me. What have I borne for thee? And thou hast brought to me down from thy home above salvation full and free, thy pardon and thy love. Great gifts, great gifts thou broughtest me. What have I brought to thee? Oh, let my life be given, my years to thee be spent, world fetters all be riven, and joy suffering blent. Thou gavest thyself for me, for me. I gave, I give myself to thee. May that be our prayer even this evening. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for your word and thank you for just the reminder of what Christian discipleship is all about. Thank you, dear Lord, that you have sent your eternally begotten Son to be our Savior, to offer his life as a ransom for us. And, and we pray that we would, in response, yield ourselves to you and to him. We pray that we would accept this call to discipleship, that we would die to ourselves, that we would recognize that within ourselves there dwells no good thing. There is sin and, and wickedness and waywardness. Yet, dear Lord, help us to yield all of us to all of you. Help us to be devoted to Christ. Help us to walk this world with our ears and our eyes and our hearts set on you. And help us to do so in your strength by your grace. Dear Lord, we come before you as weak and needy people. And we know that we have a great task, as we were reminded even this morning, to, to bear witness to Christ, to, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Yet, dear Lord, we recognize that, that this first and foremost requires us to yield ourselves fully to you. How can we speak of what we haven't seen or heard? What, how can we speak if we haven't fully embraced the cross and, and the gospel? And so we pray even this evening we would heal ourselves completely to you, that you would take hold of us and use us mightily for your glory. We ask this all again, not because we deserve it, but because you are gracious and kind. In your son we pray. Amen.